So hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? So happy to be here. Thank you so much for making it here. Um, I always actually start the Asterix conversation with a, asking both of us to have a moment of silence, to land into our bodies and just breathe. Would you be okay doing that with me since we're of in course. two different time zones and two different spaces? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll just take a moment to breathe. Hello, this is Simon Simone van Sarlos and welcome to the Asterisk Conversations. Today I am joined and I'm so excited to be joined by esteemed poet Claudia Rankin. Claudia is the author of six different collections of poetry, among which her latest book, Just Us, an American Conversation. And of course her book, her famous, famous book, prize-winning book, Citizen, an American Lyric, as well as Don't Let Me Be Lonely. She's the playwright of three different plays, among which The White Card and Help, which I have not been able to see because it premiered in March 2020. If you want to learn more about Claudia's work with the Racial Imaginary Institute or about her film work with John Lucas, continue listening. Enjoy. Thank you. I'm like, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> In your body. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much, Claudia Rankin, for joining me. Um, and congratulations on your book, Just Us. Oh, thank you. And maybe we should start with the body, um, since we are just breathing in that. And you said you just came back from a hike. Um, how how do you feel about the body in terms of you as a writer and like where is the body when you write? That's such a you know it, that's an incredible question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. <laughs> where is the body when I write? I I would have to say that it is all around because the whole endeavor is an investigation. No matter what the subject is, the endeavor is investigation of how do you care for bodies? How do you care for people? And um, how do you account for the feelings inside people, um, given all kinds of dynamics that are in play all the time? So yes, the body is front and center in as much as people are front and center. Yeah, that's also really interesting, like thinking about, for example, um, we once met, I'm sure I remember this and you might not, <laughs> but uh, it was actually in New York at the kitchen uh, when the Whiteness Symposium was organized uh, there yes. uh, by the Racial Imaginary Institute. Um, and I signed up to volunteer, so I folded papers, etc. so that I could oh, be Oh, fantastic. That's what well, you look familiar. And I, I kept, the, I'm trying, I was trying to place. And so, yes. Well, I wouldn't expect you to remember it, yeah. but it was a really great day. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking about it because also, uh, like, if we speak about the body and, of course, thinking about the Racial Imaginary Institute and sort of the, the highlighting of the imaginary 
and what that means and also how the imaginary, I guess, is tied, as you say, for caring for bodies or caring with bodies. Um, but maybe to pose a, a more simple question, the Ratio Imaginary Institute, you co-founded it or you founded it? Um, I co-founded Co-founded it. Can you say a little bit maybe more about the, what the Ratio Imaginary entails for you? Well, I, you know, there are all of these ideas that drive people and they're created ideas. They, um, they are not informed by actual encounters or actual knowledge. They're really imagined um, beliefs that then disallow people from seeing the people in front of them. Um, rec you know, and so I wanted, along with others, to found an institute where we could begin to really talk about how, um, before we can meet each other, we have to deal with the projections that are put upon us, the imaginary ideas about who we are. And, you know, can we talk about that? Can we, can we look at it in terms of um, culture, being culture makers? How, how can we look at it? And so um, um, Beth Lafreda and I, a long time ago, um, collected essays from writers around how, why it's difficult to talk about race. And we initially published that. And then we, along with anybody who wanted to join us, um, put together the Racial Ma Imaginary Institute. And that's where you came in and helped during the, um, the show at the kitchen. And um, right now we're working on a new series of events called The Fragility of We. W-E, um, the fiction of nations. What mm. does that mean for us, given the ways in which um, the us and them mentality has been controlling what democracy means in these, in our country, and also in Europe, you know? Yeah, I'm sure we will be talking a little bit more about the us. Um, because of obviously your new book, um, Just Us. But I'm just reminded of something that I, I might have to share with you because in the kitchen, I remember like when I came there and I signed up and I had signed up with somebody who was like uh, organizing with the volunteers and I got into the the elevator and I said hi to a person next to me and I said, oh, I'm Simone. And uh, she said, I'm Lauren. And I was like, oh, great. So you're also volunteering. And uh, she was like, yeah. And I was just like, so how did you end up here? <laughs> and she's like, well, I know Claudia. She's just kind of like went cool. And I was like, oh. And like slowly but surely it settled in that it was Lauren Berlant. <laughs> and I had not recognized her. <laughs> and this was before wearing masks. So I, I still like suddenly that embarrassment that I had back then rose with me or like came back to me. Um, yeah, it was an interesting moment. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you bring you evoke Lauren right now. She's she's in hospital, so I mm. 
I um we send our prayers up and across into her to surround her mm. in this moment. Yeah, it also came back to me. I didn't know that, but um because she's in the credits of the of the white card, when you credit people like how you could have been able to write that play, Lauren Berlant is also in there. Yeah, no, we talk quite often. Yeah. And and speaking of the white card, um I saw the white card in Boston. Oh, you did? Uh, yes, and um, it was great. It was amazing. Um, and it was also very interesting because after the play itself, um, of course, there was conversation held um, mm -hmm. amongst the audience. And there was a, a white woman, I think 60 plus, who sort of jumped up from her chair and felt so exuberant and and joyous and she was just like i finally get it now i finally get it and i recited that moment um of what i then might have phrased white excitement about getting it and um maybe that's something that we also see now again this summer with the black lives matter movement etc and I recited that moment in Saidia Hartman's class um, in at Columbia University, and Saidia Hartman immediately countered, well, her saying that in that moment, for me, is simply a sign of more anti-Black racism. Hmm. Because the fact that up to that point, until that play that was written for someone maybe like her or something, that suddenly it speaks to her in such a way that she could say out loud, as if that wasn't an offense for everybody there, I get it now, I finally get it. And I really think about that, what Saidi Hartman said and how you as an author of that play, how you relate to that. And in terms of also having readers, right, who might say, I finally get it now. And how you would feel about well, that or relate to I that. I think that um, one of the reasons I um, changed my focus in terms of writing about anti-blackness in this country was I felt like um, among white people, there was the ability to talk about racism without understanding their own complicity within it. And um, so, you know, to use uh, Teje Cole's term, there was racism without racists. And so on the one hand, we had, um, you know, people of color, BIPOC people, for years saying, this is it, this is here, look what's happening, look what's happening. And then you have um, white people saying, Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But I don't have anything to do with it, <laughs> mm. you know. And so the 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 attempt in the white card was to say, it's not about you being with me. It's about you understanding that you're part of this. This is this is as much about you as it is about anything. And um, so when she says. I get it. To me, what she might be saying is, I have managed to go this long without understanding my own involvement in this. Mm. 
which doesn't say she's not racist. It's not like I get, I get um, a, a pass on racism. <laughs> it just means I have somehow managed to create a world in which I know racism exists, but I didn't understand that I was part of the problem. And, and you know, because, because like Charles, that woman probably is not holding the gun. She's not, um, you know, kneeling on George Floyd's neck. But she is um, supporting all the structures that allow um, George Floyd to be in that position in the first place. And, you know, so, so I don't think that Sidi is wrong in saying that it doesn't say anything about her anti-blackness. It's not, I get it in terms of, I understand racism. I think what it is, is I get it in terms of, I understand my part in this. Mm. Yes, and I, maybe I should also like turn back and say that when I talk about this person, this woman in the audience, it's not that I try to distinct myself or separate from that as a white person, but I, what I did learn from Hartman in that class was that excitement about learning something can be violent also. And that is something, yeah, I'm just really wondering how, how you, since you write explicitly about whiteness, whether that is, whether that isn't always like, how do you say, like a, a bitter sour, a bitter sweet. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, bitter sweet sort of. Yeah, yeah, because it should be in a humbling moment, mm. not an exciting moment. Mm. <laughs> if 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 I realize how I am part of the structures of violence mm. against vast numbers of people and the history of violence in this country, I don't think I'd be jumping up and down about that. Mm. I, you know, one would feel very humbled if, if, if a true recognition really was occurring. Mm. Well, yeah. And then it sounds like I'm thinking now also of a sentence in Just Us where you describe something about how Audre Lorde has written about something. I'm not immediately from the top mm -hmm. of my head what is it about, but you write so beautifully. Uh, it's just something Audre Lorde took the time to tell us. And I'm thinking about that now also in relationship to what you're saying about humbling, because that, that one sentence to me stuck out so much because Audre Lorde took the time to tell us. It's this appreciation of the time and the repetition that she put in. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's also what I'm wondering in terms of, in, do you experience as a writer, do you experience whiteness as a trap? that you're in that, like I'm thinking about also this moment in Just Us when you go to Fairview, uh, a theater play with a white mm -hmm. friend. And, um, well, you could probably narrate it better, um, but she doesn't get up when white people at the end of the play are asked to join on stage so that the uh, black people in the audience wouldn't have to feel watched 
um, or are not the subjects on stage or are not the subjects of the gaze and your white friend doesn't get up and you write, why am I not able to stop reading this moment? Why am I unable to set it down and file it away? And there's something about this that even though you approach it with such mildness, because you, you allow space for going back to that moment, but it also reads like a trap. Well, it, it, it's, it's, I think, you know, one of the things that Audre Lorde did that I might have been referring to in that statement was, you know, she did take the time to, to ask Adrian Rich to account for what she felt were the omissions in um, Rich's embrace, in a sense. And the ways in which um, people of color were not included in sort of white feminist um, approaches and ideology. Um, with my friend who attended the play Fairview, it's Jackie Jury, um, Sibley Jury's play. Uh, I, you know, with her, I think. I found that moment of refusal when she refused to get up and go on stage perplexing. And one of the things I'll have to tell you, one of the reasons I was perplexed is because she's a member of the Racial Imaginary Institute. <laughs> and I thought, what, what does that mean? Like, how did you come to our meetings and yet not understand the importance of this moment and and in fact um are a, is able to reduce it to um an assault you know her her whole thing is it feels like um chastisement mm. and so i think that that realization when I am with white people of a kind of inability to get it, mm. despite actions, you know, despite their actions. Um, because she did, you know, she, she, she was a member. She no longer comes um, for other reasons, um, personal reasons. But um, I think I, I really wanted to try and unpack that moment from her viewpoint. But the more she unpacked it for me, the more I understood her to feel chastised by the entire endeavor of, of entering into anti-blackness as uh, an activity that she herself would be engaged in. Um, so it, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Also the, the option, right. Of like engaging or not engaging mm -hmm. this, this element of choice, um, which actually makes me think of a question I have for you about choice. Um, because if I earlier tried to sort of phrase why it felt also like a trap 
or why it feels for me like a trap Trap. um, for you having to write about whiteness. it's also there's a moment in a, in an interview you did you did many interviews uh, podcast interviews um, and you talk about because people celebrate your bravery for engaging in conversations with mostly cis white men uh, in liminal spaces such as the airport and um, your bravery there is celebrated and at one point in one interview you said um, well it, it it always remains a choice you could always say no to a conversation. And that was really puzzling to me because I wondered, like, is it really true? Like, do you have a choice to not engage? Um, can you choose not to feel or be addressed? That's an excellent question. I don't think you can choose to receive the kind of hostility that sometimes comes towards you and the kind of erasure that happens. I mean, you recognize it, Um, but you can, um, you can choose to give it importance. You can choose to, uh, whether or not you want to engage it um, beyond the fact of the matter of it happening. I do believe that there is choice. And and also the thing, you know, there's institutional racism and it's backed up by big forces of government and um, police and all kinds of things that as an individual, I don't feel like I can push back against um, as an individual. Um, but when I'm in one-to-one conversations, that's just another person. Mm. And if it's not the in, the police, but another person, mm. then yes, I can choose. Mm. I can walk away. I can decide to turn my body, take out my book, close mm. my eyes, do whatever I want. <laughs> Conversation over. <laughs> you know? And, and certainly I have engaged in all of those and 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 others have engaged in the same thing towards me mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't want to talk to me they don't feel like talking to me they're not going to talk to mm-hmm. me i there's nothing i can do to make them do that so i you know i i don't think um it's a trap in that way and also you know i i think as people of color inside um the various structures we're inside, we're confronted with um, white people all the time, Mm. whether it's in the classroom or at the doctor's office. So we're talking to each other all the time. Um, The question is how, how deep does that talk get, Mm. you know? And, um, and when, um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't engage if it was aggressive, Mm. if I felt in any way um, at risk. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, what you said just immediately brought me back to our beginning about the body. Because it sounds like when, when you can get to making a choice is when you do not feel like your body is on the line or your body could be harmed. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also thinking about, and of course, um, 
you've heard about this, this um, the book title, uh, Why I Don't No Longer Talk About Race with White People. I hope I'm yes. saying it correct. Yeah. Why I No Longer, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and something in what you say reminds me that maybe it's not actually about talking. Like the refusal to talk to somebody is one thing that you can have in like a daily encounter you could have in an airport before COVID. Um, that's one refusal, but maybe there's the actual like desire beneath that would be to not having to engage on a physical level, right? Like to not have to be addressed or called to interact within white spaces or to not have to have physical white spaces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, white spaces, I'm, there are spaces I'm beginning to start. I, I've been thinking a lot about the use of the word white spaces or phrase white spaces or white institutions. I mean, in and of themselves, the institutions are just institutions mm -hmm. and the spaces are just spaces. And how can we bring them back to that neutrality, you know? And so it seems to me like the spaces are just spaces peopled with white people in the majority often and, and controlled by those people so that um, those Others are, are not let in. But we have to begin to see this, the institutions and the spaces in and of themselves as neutral spaces, as spaces that could perform differently, could be peopled differently. Um, and one way to stop that is to stop calling them white spaces <laughs> and, um, and begin to see them as you know spaces that that um presently are overpopulated by by white people but um but are not inherently white spaces would you say that counts too for the police um Well, in terms of the police, I think one of the problems with the police is the ideology in the policing is towards anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we have seen is that it doesn't matter even if the police are black sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, that the culture of the police um, is the problem almost. But we also, and, and in addition, we also know that um, the police has, has become a haven for white supremacists. It's, you know, they themselves have said that they, they've, they have um, targeted um, those kinds of jobs as places where they can continue their work, mm -hmm. <laughs> in a sense. So that would argue against the fact that you could have a neutral institution by just swapping the people, right, in terms of the mm -hmm. police. Yeah, yeah, because the culture remains the same. So, um, so both things have to change simultaneously, the culture mm -hmm. and the people, at least become integrated. Mm -hmm. And when thinking about um, maybe 
going back once more to the white card, because um, there's an image in my head that actually has to do with white spaces where um, the white card played, at least in Boston, it played in a, in a white box. Um, and on one point, maybe I'm completely remembering it incorrect, but how I remember it um, was that there is a projection of white skin color uh, on the walls. And that was so incredible and remarkable to me because I realized at that moment that it was the first time where I saw whiteness related to actual skin color objectified, like made into an object or made into a scenography, which I don't think ever happen, happens to whiteness, this object, objectification. And maybe a question from that would be actually to talk about your use of image um, in many of your books and how how you relate to to using image um, and also like how you centralize certain things in images by redaction, for example. That's a great question. I mean, you know, when we think about um, racism, we can extend it out to language, policy, um, all kinds of things. But on the surface, everything gets activated when somebody sees somebody else. <laughs> you know, when, when they decide that what they're seeing is not an extension of themselves. And, um, you know, so when you think about the hubbub in the royal family, you know, people are like, oh, I can't believe somebody said to, 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 to them, we're worried about the skin color of the baby. Will the baby be too dark? And that's a moment, you know, if they could be assured that the baby would come out and pass into whiteness, they would have been okay. But the question means that it is about the image of the thing. It, it's how will it look? And so um, because of that, I was really interested in bringing visuals into the work, um, creating a kind of image text dynamic so that both... Um, things were engaged at the same time that you're reading, but you're also seeing. You're also having to negotiate what you see as you're taking in the language. Um, and that that was specifically because it's um, entangled. Mm -hmm. um, Fano talks about how, you know, um, a white person sees a black person and the first thing they say is, look, a nigger or a Negro or whatever he said, Negro. Um, and, and that's right. It's first, it's the look, <laughs> and then everything changes. Notions of welcome change. Notions of care, notions of belonging, everything changes. Everything you just said should be, um 
amplified in the Netherlands because um, you might have heard about uh, that for a few years now, but I think for decades actually already, people have um, been protesting the the figure of Black Pete um, yes. in the Netherlands, yeah, which is like a December around the holidays mm-hmm. um, figure that uh, is then, since it has been protested, which already started in the 80s, but for the last 10 years, this has been much more um amplified at least by by mainstream media which of course helps mm-hmm. um and then the, like the backlash to that uh has been amazing and i mean amazing in a negative sense um because people say like oh don't you know like uh, most well not all <laughs> dutch white people uh who would who would defend this figure would say like well this needs to stay this is our tradition and so often you have like um a moderate group of people, well, they would consider themselves moderate, who would be like, well, you know, I'm not for or against so much. Um, but they would sort of say as a sort of um, remark to defend, like, why are we even talking about this? What is the importance of the look of a fictitious figure? And of course, you could also say this to those people who defend this fictitious figure uh dressed up in blackface, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting sort of way of saying like, oh, it's just a frivolous thing to be talking about. Mm-hmm. It's just about the look, like, should we change the color of its hair? Should we change that the figure does not wear lipstick anymore, etc. Um, I mean, you really wonder where it's, where it's gonna go in that sense, like thinking along with what you said about the importance of the image. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, I think that sense, my, my question always in those moments is, what is your investment in it? Mm. You know, and, you know, in that case, I can imagine people saying, well, it's a tradition, and I grew up with it. But we grew up with a lot of things we shouldn't hold on mm-hmm. to. So why do you want to hold on to this? You know, and especially when people have come to you and said, even if you don't find it offensive, we find Mm -hmm. it offensive and we are here too. So are you more committed to a fictional image than to the people standing in front of you? You know, that is always interesting to me. Like why would an image get your alliance about before and your support and your passions before actual people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then maybe to just talk a little bit more about redaction, um, because w- a way that you use image, but also using text, right? Um, mm-hmm. Redaction, there's an image for, sorry, you wanted to say something. No, 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 I'm listening. Um, there's an image, of course, in, um, in Citizen, an American lyric. Um, it's, it's an image of a, a lynching where the people who have been lynched are redacted from the image. So we only see Mm -hmm. the white people and their unfortunate excitement. Um, and then there's also, for example, the redaction in Just Us, 
where the friend we had previously talked about, um, uh, which mm -hmm. you saw that play Fairview with, um, you take her text and only keep a few words of that. So the rest mm -hmm. of the... I actually take my text and ah, only keep okay. a few words of that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because, um, well, I think... Um, I think in in Citizen, the idea was we're looking in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to this, you know, a lot of people have said, why have you changed your focus to to write about whiteness, to look at whiteness? And, and again and again, I answer, because we are in this country together. And if we don't understand how this dynamic is affecting all of us, then the dynamic will not change. We cannot just talk about black grievance without looking at white complicity. Mm. And um, and so there the redaction was to, if you have two lynch bodies, that's where you're going to look. You're going to look at the two lynch bodies. And you might for, you might say, and surrounded by a crowd. But if you take away what is um, atrocious and you know, the spectacle in that image, then the new spectacle becomes the people who are standing there. And so that, I, I really wanted to redirect the gaze mm -hmm. in that, in that um, gesture. In, in um, Just Us, the issue of erasure or um, redaction was to highlight, to bring forward certain things. Because my essay around um, my white friend who refused to go on stage um, after in it, while we were watching Fairview was a way of trying to, in a way, imagine the contingencies and the justifications and my own emotional response to that. But after she came back and said, you know, I don't want to be chastised, then I thought, oh, I can take away all of my thinking and just say the one thing that is true, which is you don't understand, mm -hmm. you know? And that is a huge disappointment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, so the, so when I redacted my original essay, it was almost like to say, oh, it turns out all these words are not necessary. In fact, why am I making a way when there is no way? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the other redactions in Just Us are, um, or erasures in Just Us have to do with um, Thomas Jefferson um, notes on Virginia. And there I wanted to pull forward the text that um, apparently Americans either are not familiar with or just read past, you know, where Jefferson is actually saying some of the most racist things you can imagine even as he has 
been the author of the language of democracy, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I, um, I wanted to think about erasure as a way of highlighting something, of bringing it forward. And then it, and also it was my way of being in conversation with the text. It's like, I'm hearing you say these things. Mm-hmm. You might be dead, but I'm hearing you say <laughs> these things. Mm. Yeah, I realize now that maybe I've also erased, when I said that it was your friend's text and not yours, that also feels now like a gesture of erasure, saying that they were actually your friend's words. So I apologize for that. Um, oh, no, 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 but but it follows her text, yeah. so I can see, I can see how um, it might mean that we need to bring bump up the text behind it, so you can actually read what's back there. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's just that I probably read it exactly the opposite way, which is that. You were saying now. Now I I totally get what you're saying when you explain it, and then I realized that I was reading it in a way where I thought you erased her words because, in a way, all that she really said um, was that I'm not hearing you anyway, mm-hmm. which is the same of the, the of the same coin. I'm afraid. Yeah, but then I would be doing to her the very thing I don't yeah. want done. Yeah. And you wouldn't do that, probably. <laughs> and I would try not to no, do that. No, only with Jefferson. Only with Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you? Th- I'm I'm trying to. Sorry. I'm looking at the page mm. right now because I want to see. I want to see how readable it is because maybe we do need to bring it up. Well, don't take my experience as well. It's on, at least with me, it's one seventy nine. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not. It's you can't read it. You can only know that these words appeared in the original essay. Mm. You'd have to go back to the yeah. original to see to see um, that they appeared. Yeah, which makes much more sense. Also, in terms of the her text is ita- italic, mm-hmm. so it makes exactly. much more sense, like visually, to go back to yours. Um, an embodied refusal yeah a character asks the white members of the audience to get up the black actor wishes the space to hold black people what if the white woman remains in her seat the playwright might think an embodied refusal. Still, she doesn't respond. Refusal like a dropped dream. I didn't want to. No, cannot. I am not the whiteness I imagine. So that to me became the two, like, you know, what this is what the ass was my experience of it her refusal was like experiencing a drop dream 
and she is not the whiteness I imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as in um, a member of the racial imaginary. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And what you said about like, you don't need all the other words because apparently she doesn't hear what's true. Um, yeah. It very much reminds me of, um, of course, your fact checks. Um, and the way that the book is, I wouldn't say divided, of course, but it's, um, it's set up in a way that on the right page, you have the prose poetry writing that you have obviously written. And on the left page, um, you have fact checks that are also written mostly like fact checks, or, or it's kind of mm-hmm. clear that they're fact checks because they're also named with the sources, etc. And to me, it, it reminded me immediately, and also since we evoked Audrey Lord into the room, um, it reminded me of a passage that I would like to read to you uh, from a conversation between Adrian Rich and Audrey Lord, who you've also already mentioned, mm-hmm. um, when they talk about the need for facts, or maybe not the need for it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something that I have in Audrey Lord's um, Your silence will not protect you. And it's a moment where um, Audrey Lord has told Adrian and Rich about a racist event that she has experienced. And um, Adrian and Rich has apparently asked her for more documentation or a more factual account of that moment. And then Audrey says, I'm saying Audrey because that's what it says here. (laughs) Um, But I'm used to associating, so she sort of counters this to Rich, and she says, but I'm used to associating a request for documentation as a question of my perceptions, an attempt to devalue what I'm in the process of discovering. And then Adriana says, it is not. Help me to perceive what you perceive. That's what I'm trying to say to you. And Audrey says, but documentation does not help one perceive. At best, it only analyzes the perceptions. At worst, it provides a screen by which to avoid concentrating on the core revelation, following it down to how it feels. And I really thought about this reading, the difference, even on a visual level, right? The difference between your story, your writing, and the facts. And what is the necessity of the facts? Because, yeah, I should stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Um, tell me again what what um, Audrey said. It um... she says it's um, a screen of perception, like it's 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 it hides mm-hmm. perception. Um, it doesn't actually help to understand because it doesn't follow down to how it feels. Mm-hmm. So the experience doesn't become more real by having a factual description of. By providing you documentation, you make me feel like I have to prove the event happening. No, that's that's great. Um, I love that. It doesn't fall down to how it feels. Mm. Um, um, the question of why the um, the fact check is there. has come up a number of times. I mean, uh, somebody said you, in, in one discussion I had, they said, 
You didn't need the fact checks. People should just believe black women. <laughs> and But the fact checks are not there to authenticate anything. There, that's, to me, the act, because sometimes it's not, it's not um, a traditional fact check. It's an image. It's some clouds out the window. It's, you know, it's an associative move that says, look over there, see if anything interests you. <laughs> um, if it, you're you know, if it, if it takes you somewhere, go with it. If not, not. Um, the structure of the essays in, and poems in Just Us got their structure because the very first one was written for a newspaper. It was an article that was written for the New York Times. And because the Times, um, by necessity, asked for fact checks, I thought, what would it be like if just regular conversations in the world had to be fact checked? That And sometimes those fact checks would show me as being wrong, me, Claudia, as, as misremembering or maybe exaggerating a point or or not understanding the implications of a point. And I was I wanted to put those in just to say that this is not about me being right. It's about me engaging and arriving fully to these conversations and being a little bit suspicious of my own motivations and my own feelings and my own um, missteps. And that it's more a process-oriented investigation, this book. It's a book of questions. Yeah. It's a book where um, my interest is in how questions beget questions, you know, and, and how people meet each other. And when we move and when we don't move in terms of each other, when... Um, and so I saw Just Us as really kind of making available a process so that when you finish the book, it's not that you would be like, you have to believe Claudia Rankin. It would be more like, oh, I might actually think about what I, why I said that thing in the way that she thought about why she said that thing. And or you might think, um, I wonder what the history about that really is. I know I refer to it, but do I really know the history? Mm. Or that makes that reminds me of that image by Hank Willis Thomas. I know his work. You know, mm. like all of the the way in which pedagogy works. I mean, pedagogy is not about moving forward with all the right answers. It's about learning how to think. Mm. And in many ways, we have given up on thinking for ourselves. And, um, and if we were able to think for ourselves, maybe the imaginaries that are inherited wouldn't have as much control over us as they do. Mm. 
Because if you thought about them, it actually doesn't make much sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the book was really meant um, as a mirroring of process, not a, you know, because there's so much information out there. There's no way one book could actually cover any of these subjects in a substantive way mm. and still privilege the conversation. Mm. Somehow when you said about um, some one person who said to you, we should believe black women, so you don't need the fact checks, which I will not, of course, counter in any way, but because of how you kept talking and thinking, I I just felt like maybe the the ability or possibility to disbelieve, to have disbelief for your own thoughts, to have disbelief for your own feelings even, is also a kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Instead of believing yourself in a way, right? There's, exactly. yeah, it's an opening. Mm. It's an opening because if you can, if you can um, question, you know, because right now we're in. I just read this incredible paper by Homi Baba. And he was saying that we were in an interesting moment where truth no longer mattered and that all you had to do was make an allegation and that thing was now true. Mm. And the allegation did not have to be supported by fact, did not have to exist in any reality that is true, but somehow it became true because the allegation was made. The, you know, the, um, the election was inaccurate based on what doesn't matter <laughs> somebody said so you know and um as somebody who who stands to gain from the the now truth of that statement the understandable confusion that happens with justice and the fact checking page is that the facts are 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 privileged mm. suddenly. And that wasn't my intent. My, my intent was to, um, to say they, in fact, might destabilize the speaker in some way. Mm. And that the process of the conversation is more important than, to me, mm-hmm. than um, the outcome or the um, intent or the passions even, you know, but the, the actual engagement is what, what we're mm. interested in. And when you speak about the proce- pro- process, um, I'm thinking about this passage or a part or an essay in the book where you're talking about understanding more of the racism that Latinx people in the U.S. experience. Um, and it was so remarkable to me because on, in a way it read like that part was the the most unwritten, or how to say, like the most um, in process still. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not an English teacher, so I wouldn't know how to point that out, but it was really, for me, it felt like it was still a very raw and open piece, and not just in what you're saying, but also even in the writing. Like it's a, as if you're showing that there's process still very much going on. Yeah. And I, you know, people said to me, why do you keep that in there? 
Why don't you take it? Because it's vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said because I that I wanted to have a moment where the speaker was totally out of her league. Mm. I was totally out of my league. And this is not a conversation I've had before. This is not, I hadn't been called on this mm. before. And I could have, you know, um, written it in such a way where I looked a little bit better, but it wouldn't have been true to the moment. Mm. The moment really was me kind of um, thrown by the not knowing of it. And that, and that often conversations can start that way if you haven't done the work. Mm-hmm. And, and in that area, I hadn't done the work. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was like, this is what that looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How starting in the kind of clumsiness of um, the inadequacy of knowing mm-hmm. and, and and what it feels like to just be told you should read this and you should read this and you should do this and and be like, oh, okay, I guess so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Do you think? And um, so I wanted, I wanted, because I, I wasn't interested in coming out looking like some kind of hero. We don't need any more mm-hmm. heroes. We, ha- we have enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have enough. I, you know, it, the idea was there, I might know a little bit about the things that I've taught, but there are many areas where I'm starting at zero yeah. and, and, and swimming upstream like the rest of us. Do you think you'll be writing something similar, like an approach or an open approach, uh, concerning indigenous politics and indigenous life in in the U.S.? Um, you know, there was a section in Just Us about, and and that I did take out because mm-hmm. I felt like it wasn't um, developed enough. That conversation was. Um, um, very slight mm-hmm. on both sides. Um, it was a conversation um, I had that I, I I started writing about, but then um, um, I didn't have the capacity to get in touch with the person again, so I wasn't able to keep pushing and moving forward, so I took it out. But yes, mm-hmm. yes, to answer your question, I do think... Um, that involvement with indigenous peoples is something that will show up now in the next racial imaginary um, show symposium mm. that we're planning for 2022. Mm. a good way to get back into our conversation from Mm -hmm. yesterday um, where we left off talking about indigenous politics and how you took that passage out and I just wanted to take us back to just us and how I've heard you describe that it went through a process of a few different readers Mm -hmm. Um, it went to your shrink Mm -hmm. um, a fact checker Mm -hmm. I think also a lawyer Mm -hmm. and also the person when you write about somebody you also let the person who's in that part of the writing read it, right? And I I wonder 
why it is so important for you to have these different voices or different readers? Well, it, it wasn't imp- <laughs> it was important, so I, I shouldn't say it that way. The performance and the reality of the engagement were both important. Um, um, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the conversation uh, that came out of the dinner party where the... Um, The Cuban artist was um, talking about the long history of Latinx people in this country, and you know she's somebody I I I really wanted to respond to the essay because one I was out of my frame of reference in thinking about it, and I I would have loved to have heard what she what she thought. So I really the. I really appreciated and learned from the responses, even when I didn't agree with them. I appreciated and learned from my therapist, even when I, I thought maybe she was sort of on a different track than I was. And I, I learned from the fact checker. Um, I also fact checked, but he went in def, you know, definitely in, into areas that I wouldn't think of going into. So I, I found the whole um, endeavor an important sort of building mm-hmm. of, of each essay. And the point was both to enact it and to show it. Hmm. Um, so in that way, I think the book is very much about the modes of pedagogy mm. in a way. You know, we, the final section of the book talks and refers to Lauren Ballant's idea of the ways in which we give up on thinking and, um, and prefer to have the flow of experience rather than to think for ourselves and maybe interrupt that flow. Um, and, and what does it mean to, to, to have the performance not make you look good or have mm. the performance um, be a little bit messy or have the performance um, be more concerned with the questions than the answers for example. And we are such a, you know, at least in this culture, we are so invested in the idea of solutions and success and um, resolution and simplicity if it means that we can stand firm. And for me, justice is everything against that. It's about the messiness. It's about the complicated questions. It's about the way in which we can both be inclusion and in protest, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, how we can choose to die or here and 
also be out there on a Black Lives Matter protest. And that in, in some ways, that's what it means to be alive. <laughs> you know, mm. that at, at any given moment, we are make ch- making choices about what freedoms we need to take back and which we are willing to give up in a sense. Hmm. When you say taking back, it reminds me of a work that I very much, um, I was going to say worship, maybe that's a bit too much, admire, um, of you and John Lucas, um, the situation one in which um, Zidana gives a headbutt to the counter player whose name yes. I don't Maserati, I think his name is. Or is that the car? (laughs) But it's something like that. (laughs) And it's a moment, I mean, it's a historical moment, I guess, for people who have lived through it. Um, And I'm bringing this up because I always think about this work um, because there's a few seconds where the headbutt happens and you take these few seconds or you and John Lucas take these few seconds And it becomes a few minutes. And there's a collage of different poets speaking in your voice, but the collage is is uh, citing different poets and writers and thinkers. And when you said taking freedom back, I'm always seeing this work situation one as a rewriting of history. Well, I don't, I don't see it as a rewriting of history so much as a slowing down mm. of the moment so that we can see all that goes into a moment. You know, the, the Zidane moment is like that. You're like, what? Wait, what just happened there? <laughs> you know, you mm. turn around to get your lemonade or whatever you're doing while you're watching the game. And then you turn back and people are like, did you see that? Um, so by slowing it down to five minutes, you, you have to walk your way through the history that got Zidane where mm. he was and got Maserati where he was. And, and, and that then explains, um, the significance of that moment why it became the phenomenon. You know, it's, it's the Zidane's father from Algiers. It's a long history of Europeans versus um, blacks, you know, post-colonial um, Sorry. <laughs> yes, we can hear that. <laughs> yes, I thought, oh God, yes. You need a rug. <laughs> got it. We're on our way down to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the post-colonial history writ large. So I, 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 in many of the situation videos, it's not so much that I feel like I'm, I'm rewriting them. I feel like I, with, you know, John and I, what we're up to is sort of just slowing it down so mm. that you can, you can hear everything you can see and then you can build back the, um, the long history mm. that created the moment. Um, 
um, and then the moment is itself. It mm-hmm. you know it makes sense. It makes mm-hmm. sense that Zidane um, felt he couldn't contain himself in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know. So the slowing down also becomes a way to break the flow of experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that suddenly you're you're thinking. Yeah. You have to think about it. I'm, I'm just. We need. I'm sorry. This is like <laughs> the worst interview uh, for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, if it needs to be messy, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not writing an interview. Cannot look at rugs. <laughs> Um, uh, send turquoise okay (laughs) I will send you the Lydia Davis story about the rug because there's a woman who gives her neighbor the rug and then she wants it back and then she gives it back again to the anyway it's a back and forth it's about choice and not being able to make a choice yeah yeah. When we're not being recorded, I could tell you another story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right now, not right now. Well, about time. I mean, I think the time play is fantastic, and it also inspires. I teach it with art students because it inspires so much to think about philosophy, to think about the importance of philosophy and Mm -hmm. temporality. Um, But maybe that also brings us to memory, which. Um, seems to be quite important in your work, at least if I'm reading it. Um, in Just Us, there's a, a moment where you're writing about, um, it says, I'm seeing what whiteness does to reality, or rather, it's memory. It's talking about a 1982 cross burning at the college that you and a white person you're talking to um, both have gone but he does not remember the cross burning, that it actually happened there. And this is the moment that you talk about how memory changes, uh, how whiteness changes memory. And memory also appears strongly in Citizen, an American lyric. Um, for example, where you write, this would be your flato flaw, your memory, vessel of feelings. And this is a different kind of relationality to memory because... Um, the heaviness of carrying a history of racism with you also becomes to shape the future. Like it's your doubting, or the speaker at least is doubting themselves whether you can even see clearly what's happening in front of you because you carry this vessel of memory with you. And I just wanted to talk a little bit with you about memory and how mm-hmm. that plays a role for you. Well, I think... Um You know, there's so many phrases like um, "live in the moment," um, um, "don't don't carry things with you," "don't," you know. And I always think that um, you know, sometimes what is the thing? Sometimes a a carpet is just a carpet, <laughs> or whatever people want to say, you know. And I, perhaps that's true, but I think that, um, you know, we come into the wor- world and all we do is build 
memory inside the context of history. And, um, and so often because of the violence that, um, people of color, BIPOC people are forced to negotiate day in and day out. Um, people, and it, it's on both sides. It's not just white people who want to deny memory. Also, I find, um, there are people who, who know what the memories are, but they think that those memories will get in your way. So they too want to deny the memories, you know. I'm, I'm thinking here of my mother, you know. She's like, you know, put that away, put it away. Hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm really interested in, in putting, putting always into play the fact that there is no you without those memories that the memories are in part you mm-hmm. and that you're constantly carrying them and they will they will excuse the pun color <laughs> the way in which you see a thing and um and and they will add feeling to how you experience a thing they, they, you know, it is a memory that layers the thing. And, um, and especially in Citizen, I try to think about how it is not just the moment that gets in your way, but all the other moments you remember that are activated by the moment. Hmm. Like this moment activates this moment activates this moment. And so if you were to collapse, so when I was in college, I, I, I don't know how we came up with this, but I had a friend and we used to do this thing where, <laughs> you know, now I'm almost 60. I'm like, what? But <laughs> we used to do this thing in college where we would just collapse. And it was a sort of joke. But it was like we would be walking to class and I would say, do you feel like collapsing? And she would say, yes, I do. And then we would collapse. (laughs) 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 And we literally would crumble to the ground. Wow. And and then we would laugh a lot and then we would get up and continue on. And this, this like little performance thing was our thing. We just did it. Collapse whenever you want, when you need to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, and I, and, and I think that it's the con, almost like the confluence of all of the memories that are activated by the moment that causes the collapse mm-hmm. or the recognition or the anger or, you know, you know, when, when, when George Floyd's death brings people out of their homes, it is in fact for George Floyd, but it's also Tamir Rice, it's mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, it's, you know, 
it's all of the memories activated by this moment. Hmm. And if you would transport that from the individual collapse, you falling down to the floor, or the even collective collapse, um, people going to the streets. I mean, if you would take that farther, then this would immediately mean that, indeed, where the U.S. to reckon with their history of genocide? And was the Netherlands to reckon with their colonial history or our colonial history? Then it would collapse. It would collapse, but the, the structure could take it. You know, yeah. that, that's what we saw in South Africa. The structure can take it. Then you would, you would, um, reform and move on. Hmm. And there were things that have to be done. Um, you know, the, the Committee on Reconciliation, all of that, Truth and Reconciliation that was done in South Africa. I mean, in, 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 um, Berlin, in Germany, many, um, different things done to accommodate the collapse, you know, and to recognize the history of genocide in that mm-hmm. country. So, the United States somehow has managed to circumvent the collapse, but it it feels like it managed to do it. But instead, what we end up having is um, a reassertion of the white supremacy again and again and again, um, because the country as a whole has never had to actually um, reckon with um, its treatment of indigenous people and black people and now Mexican, you know. And so you have 50% of the population who can sleep at night thinking that nothing really happened, Mm. you know. And in fact, they're the victims. Um, And I, you know, I believe them when they say they believe that. (laughs) I I, I don't think they're... Um, lying in bed going, even though I don't believe that, <laughs> I'm going to mm. go storm the Capitol. <laughs> you know, they're like, mm. I believe it. I'm going to go storm the Capitol. So, um, yeah, the collapse, I, you know, we just, we, we have never managed it. And this, the, and the way we have sort of managed to circumvent it here in the U.S. is about memory. I mean, people have the capacity here to forget from day to day. They, um, I once saw an article in New York Times where they said when they, um, interviewed white people, and I don't know if this would still be true. I read this article a few years back, but they said, you know, if you ask a black person who, George Floyd was. They could tell you. But six months after the event, you ask a white person, and they're like, hmm. And they have forgotten, because it's not central to their lives, not central to their ability to live their lives. Mm -hmm. So not worth remembering, you know? 
So, and, and, and you can imagine all they've forgotten in service of um, centralizing whiteness. Yeah. I think very similar things are happening in the Netherlands. Um, someone like Gloria Wecker has written about the way that also the Holocaust is used as a smokescreen to not have, to, like it just subsumes all the national memory so that we do not have to reckon with our colonial history that is, of course, still continuously alive. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm always and, very careful. And, because, uh, yeah. and the migrant situation that's happening all over mm, Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fort Europe. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm just also careful to say that because I think it's very easy to um, shove our shit to the US. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. it makes me think also um, about the, um, the appearance of an apology uh, and of apologizing in your work. Uh, of course, we already talked about your white friend watching Fairview with you, the, the play, um, where your friend argues that also one of the reasons why she wouldn't want to get up on stage was also that she felt that it might um, sort of give the idea that uh, if at least she would show white shame or white penance, then action would not be needed. So she felt it would be performative somehow. Mm -hmm. Um Then I'm also thinking about the scene in uh, Citizen American Lyric where um, a, a black person comes up to a therapist's office and she sh the therapist shoes him away, screams. And as soon as she re uh, recognizes that, she, that this person actually has an appointment with her, she says, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry. And I wonder how you feel about the possibility of an apology? I feel like this is some kind of trick question. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. You know, See, no, I'm so sorry. Yeah. On the face of, of things, I, I think apologies are good. Mm. You know, but as I, I always feel like it's not what you say or the it's really what happens next. You know, what happens after the apology um, is because often what happens is a kind of backtracking where um, it ends up being the black person's fault mm. that the white person made whatever mistake they made. And there's, you know, a list of defensive or a, a mode of defensiveness that is carried with that apology. Um, so, and so in many cases, those apologies mean nothing because of what happens next. Um, so though it's a good place to start, it's really only a starting point. Hmm. And why did you feel it was a trick question? Well, I, I think a little bit because um, you 
You know, and just as I talk a little bit about how civility, modes of civility mm. are used to um, erase engagement or um, reroute conversations, etc. So I was wondering if you were heading that way. <laughs> <laughs> So you felt tricked into your own book. <laughs> yeah, my own book is tricking me up. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we come to speak about that, I mean, maybe we want to explain, for example, one sort of obvious concrete scene where civility is taking over the moment that you're at a dinner party and someone points to the brownies. Do you want to recount that scene? That scene. Well, that was... Um, a dinner um, where I, uh, you know, you go to these things and and you don't expect the conversation to go where it goes, and then um, and then it goes there, and you're sort of surprised by certain things. And so that particular dinner party, we were talking. It was right after Trump was elected, and there was somebody at the party who that's my dog shaking <laughs> who, um, who um was writing a book on on how the economic um reasons for voting in a fascist president and i said you know why do people especially republicans always make this claim for the economics that drive affiliation with Republican um, presidents who basically are running on fascist claims. Um, you know, he ran on racism, he ran on sexism, he ran on hom homophobia. So why can't we just believe him that people voted for the, the platform he put out there? And the guy got very defensive and started saying he didn't have a crystal ball and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and as the, the conversation got, it got heated, but heated in the sense of passionate, not in the sense of, um, rude. Mm -hmm. You know, people were. And then this woman was like, Oh, those brownies, they look so good. <laughs> and, And it was just at that point in the conversation where I was sort of pushing for a recognition of, of the line of racism that he had carried into um, the election process. And so I just turned to her and I said, you know, um, am I being silenced? And I realized at the moment that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't call out an action like that among strangers. I think you can do it with close friends, but among strangers, it amplifies because you, you don't, you don't have, um, a history of trust or a history of, of, um, shared recognitions. And, And given that um, this woman had no comeback, just looked, her, her body literally just collapsed, became collapsing. And then I became the baddie in the room. Mm. You, know, you could almost feel the, the aggression coming, coming my way. Um, so that was the, that was the dynamic yeah. of, that, of that dinner party. 
Um, but it, it, it got me to think a lot about how, how civility is used as a way of not having difficult conversations and um, preventing um, moments of discomfort that we can hold. We can hold mm. moments of discomfort. We're not going. We're not going to melt. We're not going to dissolve. Um, we are just going to be uncomfortable. And and maybe the more we are uncomfortable, the more we learn for the next time. You know. So now, when I have conversations with. Latinx people, I feel a lot more prepared for that conversation than I did when I had the one recorded in Just Us. Um, I had to go through all of that kind of incoherence to get to a place where I feel like now I can actually engage. Um, I have read these books. I have thought about it. I have had conversations with others. I understand the distinctions and the terms, etc. Describing that scene at a dinner table um, and, and talking about how chivalry is expected and breaking chivalry makes you in a way guilty of being the rupture, right? Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about um, Silvana Simons, uh, who we talked a little bit about uh, before mm -hmm. the recording started. And the moment that she started the political party was actually in 2016 when she was on national television and she was sitting there uh, as somebody from entertainment at the table, at a sort of talk show table. And in front of her was a person, a white man, who used a racial slur to talk about refugees that he actually took in-house. Because um, uh, he lived in Italy, I think. Um, and he used to raise a slur referring to the, the, the people crossing the Mediterranean Sea. And Silvana called him out and she completely delayed the, f the whole, you know how the talk show goes, like it's really quick. Mm -hmm. And she delayed it and she called him out and people were just kind of like, Sivana, what are you doing? Like, oh, you just, it's just a joke. He was just making a joke, etc. Mm -hmm. It blew up after that. She received so many threats, etc. But it was also for her the starting moment. Like it was a twist in not allowing herself to be silenced anymore. And I think... I, I don't want to write history as we're living, but I think like if... We're looking at the Netherlands and and the sort of Dutch. It, it was a historic moment. Mm -hmm. I'm of course I'm very biased, but um, <laughs> that moment, yeah, you just the way that you described it just completely made me think of that. Um, this expectation of chivalry, and also especially also from um, coming from the former colony of the Netherlands, mm -hmm. uh, from Suriname in Silvana's case, this idea of having to be grateful. Mm -hmm which completely also collapses with, with this idea of chivalry. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, the, the phrase um, white silence equals violence goes for all of us. It's not just for white people. I mean, we, uh, people of color, have um, allowed this to continue by sitting silently in rooms where it's happening. And I do think it's historical. 
a moment like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're in the States, we're seeing more and more of these moments publicly where people are like, no, no, no. And, you know, even five years ago, that those kinds of moments were just, they would just slip on, you know, and you're like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the conversation just keeps going. And, um, and now people are like, no, hold, hold. We're going to, and that's that thing about slowing it down. Mm. We're not going to keep going. We are going to um, jam the machinery and, and reroute this because we cannot um, have this in our presence. And that's the thing. This is why I don't like that term allies because allies makes it seem like you're here for me or you're here for somebody else. But it's like, no, I'm not going to be in a place where this is happening. Not for you, but for me. You know, mm. no matter if a, a white person can do it, uh, you know, anybody can do it. Um, and the fact, the fact that we weren't doing that, even when you think about, um, you know, women meet the Me Too movement. Why did it take this long for the Me Too movement to happen? When we're talking about violence, violence against women. And, you know, it's complicated with ideas of power and achievement and wanting things and feeling like you can't get them if you speak up. And, and, um, so it, it is historic. These moments mm. that are happening, um, in the last few years, they are hugely historic and they're going to drop down. There are moments that I'm really happy. My daughter is here to see them, and all the women her age are moving into society knowing that these things are unacceptable, but not privately, publicly. Hmm. And does that relate for you also to writing, like giving a certain space for a certain safety, or at least in your book, There's a safe space, I would say, not to use that term too cheaply, but for you to say whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Or is that too idealistically, maybe? No, I, I think, I mean, you know, it, when I write these books, I'm writing them with the idea that, first of all, they're not even in, 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 in consistent genres. So, they, you know, they're like... Already people don't know what to do with them. And so I know that they're probably not going to be, um, they're not going to fit into categories that can be easily summed up or easily rewarded or easily whatever. And, um, but that's okay because what, what I want from them is the possibility of doing something, mm. not the actuality of re- receiving something, if that makes sense. You know, and so that, for me, the writing really is about creating spaces and openness so that the reader can step in and begin to understand that they too can do this thing in whatever form they want to do it. Mm-hmm. And, 
And that has, it seems to have worked out. You know, a lot of people say to me, I, I wouldn't have written this if I hadn't read Don't Let Me Be Lonely or, mm. or you know. Well, something you have in common with the last two guests at this podcast, um, who are Nalo Hopkinson and Pamela Sneed, is this not fitting into categories and not having one gen genre in terms of writing. However, something I was thinking about um, while I was preparing to talk to you um, was that I have asked the previous two guests uh, how queerness or queer living or queer politics enters into their writing, how it affects their writing. And I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, you write about straight life, actually, or heterosexual nuclear living at times um, in suburbia at times. And um, I wanted to ask you, because it would be weird also not to ask you, like, how does straight life affect your writing? You mean like a heteronormativity? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I thought you would ask me how queer life affects my writing, which... <laughs> which you can also answer. I don't want to stigmatize or put you in any box. No, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel that... Um, I identify with a sort of queer femininity, um, mm. black femininity, um, queerness. That for me, that's where much of my own possibility is located. The the move outside of binaries, for example, the ability to exist even on the page as a writer in a non-binary um, perspective. So I, you know, I, I think about the people who inform me. Many of them are queer identified people like, um, Judith Butler, um, Adrian Rich, um, Lauren Ballant, as we spoke about earlier, um, Sarah Schulman, um, you know, the, and the list goes on. Uh, so, Though I live what looks like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. a husband and a dog and a child <laughs> in a house with rugs and a curtain. <laughs> um, I am not taking my, what's the word? It's not from there that I get my freedoms, mm. you know? You're totally right. Sorry. Yeah, no, go. I should have asked you, how does queerness affect your writing? Not, But I think it was also because there was a, uh, a passage um, uh, about tennis player Naomi Osaka, and you write about your surprise, and you also... Um, You you talk you counter your own surprise that um, the parents of Osaka, the tennis player, uh, were sort of exiled from their family because they're Japanese and Haitian, and you 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 talk about your surprise and that you you shouldn't be surprised. But I was immediately like, well, as a feminist or like as a family <laughs> abolitionist, you should yeah. have known because. Mm -hmm. The first thing you do is the the first thing that happens is violence within the nuclear heterosexual family, like. 
it's like the nation state. So I had this moment where I was like, that's a very straight thing to think. <laughs> Except that one remakes family. So then you you have your notion of family. Mm. This is I in our household, our daughter rules, you know, like our lives are there to make her life the life she needs, the life she wants. Um so that but you're right, if you think about how family is formed and especially if you think about it within a queer context um it's not it often sometimes it is but often not the place of safety not the place of um encouragement recognition all of that mm. Well, speaking about your daughter, maybe this will be the last question that I ask everybody, <laughs> which is about, um, it's sort of, I'm trying not to cite, but let's say that it comes from Denise Ferreira da Silva, um, who's a philosopher I, I greatly appreciate. And um, she talks about ending the world as we know it, so emphasizing the no. And I wanted to ask you, um, moving forward, What would you like us to unlearn or leave behind? Oh, that's such an amazing question. Wow. Well, from where I am right now, I think... Um, my initial response was going to be um, about the prowess of white masculinity that 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 the wrongness of that has been played up so clearly for us But we're still reading texts that constantly affirm it and, and present it and seeing films like, you know, even like the Jane Bond films, which I love. But, you know, you're like, again, here they come, those perfect people. Um, but then I, that was my initial response. But then I thought, you know, actually, that's smaller than the thing I really would like people to relearn. And, And I think it has something to do with our relationship to the land. Hmm. Um, I think we, we have seen the world as a place where we can take things. We can take the oil, we can take the fish, we can take the, you know, we can just take and take and take and take and take. And, and that it was there to service. And, and I think we have to change our orientation towards it, or else it will not be there to share. You know, we won't be able to share the space, um, between us. Mm. If we don't relearn, reorient ourselves to the actual land that we're on. So I would think that, um, as, um, 
And I, you know, I think every year we're going to see that the world will push back, is pushing back against all the taking. Hmm. So it won't be just us. It won't be just us. Thank you so much, Claudia Rankin, for this conversation. Oh, thank you. It was so much fun. Each episode, we invite a maker in the Netherlands to contribute a new work in response to the conversation. This time, we invited Rosabel Illes. Rosabel lives on the island of Aruba, which is in the Kingdom of the Netherlands, but will be found in the mid-south of the Caribbean Sea. Rosabelle is the author of multiple books, among which the poetry collection Beyond Insanity, poetry collection Title, and Spil di mi Alma, which is written in Papiamento. She's also the co-author of a multilingual children's book titled Hearty. Rosabelle Illes is a performer. Listen. Am I still here? If you choose not to see me. My relationship with reality has never been the most sound. I can't seem to decide between two tempting worlds. One revolves around my perception, and in the other, nothing is as it seems, but everything is real. I heard such a place exists, but no one has ever been, so my question remains. Am I still here? The only way I know how to respond is with a pen in my hand and mild to severe pain in my heart. We only feel alive when we are touched, yet there are myriad ways to authenticate one's breathing, none of which demands suffocating me to peace. So the next time you claim to understand, I need you to prove to the others that I am real. That I too appear in history books, not as a character of your creation or the missing piece to your liberal culture but as the clouds outside your window, the ones that drift premeditatedly, casting shadows on your face. As the obscure, unmet apologies engraved on your skin, please think of me and how I never needed to hear those sorry words. It used to be just us, but ever since nature came along, all I care about is what happens after the storm. And whether I will still be here when I am gone. Thank you for listening to the Asterisk Conversations. Thank you to the authors who participated in this episode. I'd like to thank Ilonka Reintjes for editing and, of course, Writers Unlimited for producing this podcast. Of course, I'd like to thank our amazing sound editor, Jürgen Unum JG. You can find a transcription online of this conversation and the work at Writers Unlimited website. Be in touch if you have questions or comments, and we hope to welcome you back for the next conversation. <laughs> <laughs>